Say It Skillfully is about being who you really are and saying what you think needs to be said, even at work. Whether you're part of a small project team or leading a giant company, the more you accept that you're part of the problem, the faster you can be part of the solution. Join Molly Chang today as together we break the silence, learn how to be happier, healthier, and more productive at work and in life. Hello, Molly here. Welcome to Say It Skillfully, helping you find the words to create shared reality in a way that's true to yourself. Happy 2021. I'm delighted to ring in the new year with this eighth episode of Our Voices, which is a monthly feature designed to give you an inside view of my guest's life journey. It's a chance for you to hear from people you might not otherwise meet. We'll discuss ways to accelerate social change that levels the playing field and helps everyone live to their full potential. I invite you to listen with curiosity, without judgment, and gain empathetic understanding for what may be a very different experience of what it means to grow up, go to school, struggle, work, and live in our world. You may see a bit of yourself in these journeys and embrace we're more similar than not. Now, as a youth, believe it or not, at one point, I really thought I'd be a professional athlete. Ha! And many youths do aspire to becoming a professional athlete. Few ever make that dream come true. Well, my guest did just that. Raised by a single parent, playing Division I football, he went on to professional football with the Titans, Bills, Ravens, and Jaguars before embarking on a new chapter as an entrepreneur. I'm honored to introduce Marcus Ogden, now a keynote speaker, executive coach, consultant, and best-selling author. Marcus, welcome to Our Voices. Hi, Molly. Thanks for having me. How are you doing today? I could not be more fabulous because I'm kicking off the new year with you. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate that. Well, you know, Marcus, as listeners know, um, and I've had a lot of successful folks on the show, while careers may seem, quote unquote, glamorous, it's always more than meets the eye. So we appreciate you starting, you know, with your early days uh, and take us through all that's shaped who you are. So I was raised by a single father, Cheryl Philip Ogden. Uh, our parents divorced Molly when I was eight years of age. We were raised by him, him and my bro- him, me and my brother Johnson. My brother also played in the National Football League for uh, 12 years. He's a first out Hall of Famer. And we were raised in Washington, D.C., raised on education, respecting women, respecting ourselves. I went to a very prominent high school, St. John's College High School, where the same gentleman who uh, founded Under Armour, Kevin Plank, went to high school there as well. I got a full scholarship, one full scholarship offer, I might add, to go play football at Howard University, my father's alma mater, which was awesome. It's about 15 minutes from my house in Washington, D.C. Went there, was a four-year starter. I struggled immensely my first year as a starter. I wasn't used to the speed and the level of play, and I almost flunked out of college because I had a really low grade point out. I wasn't used to having my own schedule and being free to do what I wanted to do. I got it together, graduated, and I honestly, Molly, wanted to work on Wall Street as an investment banker, but the NFL came calling, and I was drafted into the National Football League out of Howard University in 2003, and that began my journey uh, in the National Football League. It's crazy. You know, I'm going to give you a halt here and take us through, because that was maybe 18 years in maybe 75 seconds. So I'm going to push you back to those days. Your dad, as I know, was a big uh, idol. 
uh, parents' early divorce. Take us through when that happened. Was that expected, unexpected, a little bit about what it was like from the eyes of a youth um, and the world around you? Great question. So it was totally unexpected. I remember asking my mother when I was eight years of age, it was probably like in, I would guess, probably October uh, time frame. One of their friends had just divorced. And I didn't really know what that meant, but I said, Mommy, are you ever going to leave me, Daddy, and Jonathan? She said, No, Marcus, I'll never leave you and, Mar- and Jonathan and your dad. I love you all. I'm always going to be here. Well, that was, I guess, September, October. And that December, Christmas morning, she was gone. Uh, she left, and she didn't come back into our life for about six months, give or take. And because of that, really distrust with her and that whole pattern, Molly. You know, my mother and I never had a great relationship uh, since then. Uh, It was always, you know, on, off, hot, cold, on, off, hot, cold for years. And then I eventually came to a pass one day. I said, well, look, you know, Mom, I'm older, and if you can't respect me as an individual and as a person, and you can't see that I'm trying to make things and be a good person in my life, then we can't, we can't, this won't work. And that was eight years ago and hasn't spoken to her since. So I'm very honest about that. And, you know, nothing bad or ill will, but, you know, that all started when I was eight years old and it was just a very unexpected turn of events. I appreciate your sharing that. And that's a lot of, um, that is a lot to go through as a young person. And I, I'm hearing you know, a sense of neutrality when you hear your mother's name is does any do any emotions come up for you or have you just moved past oh. that oh yeah great question i mean yeah you have emotions that come up because you know my wife's mother is amazing like and my what mother-in-law has a saying i think it's so so powerful family is about acceptance it's about accepting people for who they are the false the good or bad and then I, my wife, my wife talks a lot of like, uh, you know, reality shows and things like that, you know, I discovery or A&E and things like that. And it's, it's interesting lately is a lot of people talk like their moms, how they're supposed to be nurturing, supposed to be caring. And I remember myself saying, wow, that's what it's supposed to be. But it wasn't like that for me. And my grandmother, my mother's mother, to be more specific, was huge in my life. She, my mother and my grandmother really didn't have a great relationship after she left because my, my grandmother did not understand in any capacity how any mother could leave her, her two sons. So my maternal grandmother and I were best of friends, and she was amazing to me and was a huge piece of my life. But my mother, for some reason, Molly, that train just did not you know, leave the track. Yeah, I get it. And I would offer to listeners that it's not about understanding it, but there's a level of compassion for someone who may not be in really great relationship with herself. And I think that that's a way to at least, you know, think about it for folks who may have uh, relationships, whether they're family or friends that are a little bit like you can't explain it. Um, So your father went to Howard too, his alma mater. And so I am curious when you were growing up, was that college thing, you know, front and center? Was he, were you wearing Howard University sweatshirts when you were 10? Oh, that's a, that's a, actually, I was because back then, the Cosby show was huge in our country. And so uh, Bill Cosby, you know, the show did a really good job of promoting historical black college university. And Howard was always big time worn on that show. Like, you know, the, you know, the Cosby show, Different World, et cetera, et cetera. 
And because of that, I really fell into that whole process of Howard gear. And, and, and like I said, Molly, we only lived 15 minutes from Howard. So I could go to Howard with my father and watch some of the Howard homecoming games and stuff like that. So I was always big time Howard because it was so close to us. And my father, of course, was an alma mater graduate as a, from a football player perspective as well. Oh, I see. So he, I didn't realize your father was big into football as well. So did you grow up with mixed race community? Was it very melting pot where you grew up, Marcus? Uh, it was. It was mixed race community. Well, let me go back. It was predominantly African-American where I grew up. But my father worked in downtown D.C. right by the White House. And his job was a melting pot. Uh, Middle Eastern, African-American female, male, Caucasian, Asian, uh, you know, Indonesian. You know, I remember, I mean, all types of people worked for the Federal Home Loans Bank of New York in their D.C. office when my dad was there. So I'll never forget that, Molly. And uh, it was an amazing melting pot I grew up with. Uh, and my mother actually really was more prone to stay with her race, you know, African-American, male, female, which is fine. But my dad was more, you know, welcoming to everybody. You know, he, you know, he grew up and he went, to, he went to Howard and said going there, he learned about different cultures, different people from different countries. And he really developed that. He kept that as a way of doing things for us as we grew up. And my brother went to UCLA, which was predominantly white. And so we grew up, you know, learning how to have a melting pot of people uh, to, in, our, in our lives. Do you recall early, you know, because like, kids don't see the differences, right? So do you recall early on seeing people treated differently and wondering about that? Or it was just, you just really didn't notice any of that? Oh, no, I did. I mean, my father was treated very differently because, in a good way because he didn't see color. You know, my father, I mean, it's, my father's been gone, Molly, since 2006. And I have people that used to work with him when I was a child, like, you know, seven, you know, you know seven, six, seven, eight years old, that now follow me on Facebook. And they're saying, Marcus, you're so much like your dad. Like your dad welcomed every. He was ahead of his time where he didn't care if you were male or female. People are like, Mark, sure, are you going to hire a female for this job? My dad was like, why not? Well, a woman can't work as good as a man. What do you mean? And my dad always bucked the system with that. So my dad was treated very differently because my dad only suffered for who they are and not from a skin color or a gender. And I learned that very early on in my life. And that's why with me, like I'm, I'm African-American, my wife is Caucasian, my stepdaughter is half white, half Taiwanese, her dad's full blood Taiwanese, and he lives in Taiwan now, then my, our daughter is half, uh, half African-American, half Caucasian. So I learned that, and I saw that in my father, Molly, which is why I grew up thinking and knowing that everybody could come to the table and have you know, something to say, because everybody does matter. So powerful. What a gift to have that really early on, Marcus. That's awesome. Do you remember anyone, you know, kind of thinking you couldn't do something? I mean, someone not being as supportive as you would have liked uh, in your childhood? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I remember people, you know, you know, friends uh, and my mother's friends were very hard on me and used to make fun of me a lot and were very, 
degrading because I was a bigger kid and, you know, I'm talking about I was like nine, ten years old after they divorced and some of her friends just uh, would never be anything and never be good at anything because I was kind of, you know, I was a late bloomer. I was kind of like, you know, close to my father. So I hadn't really experienced like getting out and being dealing with tough issues and things like that. So a lot of my mom's friends would sometimes make fun of me, make me feel inadequate because I didn't have that type of really, you know, developed tough skin. But as I got older and I got bigger and I matured and I realized that, you know, I can be something other than just playing sports or whatever the case may be. Uh, I learned to stand up for myself and not to let people's, you know, thought process, you know, deter me off track. Well, that's remarkable. So I congratulate you for that. I imagine a lot of hurt though, as a child, how do you, how did you deal with that? Cause that isn't, I mean, it's not very nice. I I remember one time, Molly, when I was probably, I was like 18. Yeah, I was like 18 years, no, I was 19. I I didn't have a car yet. And I was with my mother, and I was over at her house, and my mother was going to take me back home with my dad. I had to get get back to Howard for workouts and all this stuff. And my mom was waiting because she was waiting for the cleanup person to come and pick, uh, come to the house so she could go pick him up from the bus station and then bring him here to the house to clean and then take me home and say, well, mom, you're always putting people in front of me, always. And she said, what are you talking about, Marcus? And all that. I said, look, this has been all my whole life. Like, you're, this is really, really disgusting how you always put your son last. Why do you keep doing this to me? And so then she got mad at me. I got mad at her. She starts trying to hit me, you know, in the house. And I remember, I was like, okay, that's fine, Mom. No problem. I just stopped her, said, nope, not going to do this. I literally remember walking probably about, Seven, about six or seven miles to a friend's house, a female friend I mean, from high school that lived uh, not that far, walked to her house, then she gave me a ride to my godparents' house, who I had been, I had been close to them since I was born. Then my godfather took me back home to my dad's house. I remember telling my dad, never again, dad, never again will I ever be at their house with her like that ever again. She's uh, never. So that really was for me, my dad was always my outlet to help me continue to move forward and with what I was going through. Wow. Yep. Our listeners know it's the struggles that are defining. I wouldn't wish them uh, on you, but I appreciate how um, it's made you who you are. Um, You said you mentioned you struggled at Howard starting out. Say a little bit about that place. Yeah, I struggled with the academic portion of it, of, you know, being responsible, you know, having to, because in college you have your own schedule, you set your own things, if you don't go to class, no one cares, and I really started out on the wrong foot, I think I was a big football player, I could do what I wanted to do, and the teachers didn't care, and I struggled, and I had a 1.8 grade point average my first year uh, at Howard, and I almost lost my scholarship, and then my, you know, I ended up switching majors from biology to business, and I started to get my act together. And after I got my act together and started coming, going to class on time and do what I needed to do, that's when things turned around for me for the better. And then I ended up uh, having a, uh, almost a 3.8 uh, in my major and 3.5 overall when I left Howard. Wow, that's a turnaround. So where was the come to Jesus? Did your dad sit you down? Did you sit you down? Because 1.8 is... No, that's my dad. My dad said, Marcus, look, if you don't get it together, I'm going to pull you from Howard myself, and I'm going to go have you get a job. I'm like, how are you going to pull me from Howard, Dad? You're not paying for this. Well, I'm not going to let Howard waste $125,000, 25 grand per year for five-year scholarship, 
because you want to because you want to you know mess around and not go to class and not take this seriously. You're not going to take it seriously. Give this class to another another person that wants to get an education and make some of themselves. Choice is yours. And after that talk, I never had another talk with him about that again. What about a skillful father? That is epic. Oh my god, I love. I love it. I love it. I love it. I love it. Okay, so this Wall Street aspiration, was that something? How did that happen that you were all gung-ho to be an investment banker? So my dad was. My dad worked for the Federal Homeless Bank, the Federal Homeless Bank of New York in their D.C. office, and I wanted to be just like him. So he was working in the stocks and bonds room and all that. So I idolized my father. That's what I wanted to do. Okay. And so... so so you've got this career track. You're ready to go be into banking, follow your dad's footsteps. And how did you make the switch? Well, my, after my junior year, my brother and I saw my name in a couple of draft books, like, you know, as a potential uh, uh, draft prospect. And then I asked him what he thought, because he was in the league at that time for six or seven years. He said, Marcus, look, you're in the draft books. It means you got a shot. Give it your all for a year. See what happens, because the last thing you want to do in your life is never work your tail off and then find out you could have been something without the work. So that's what I did. I worked my tail off for a year, Molly, and with all that hard work, I went to an all-star game in Maui. Uh, the Hula Bowl had a great game, played my, uh, my, my butt off, and I am the first and only, still to this day, offensive lineman ever drafted from Howard University's football team. Wow, kudos. That is so awesome. <laughs> I love it. Thank you. So talk about Jonathan as you were growing up. Were you always tight? Were you always getting along? I mean, he's six to have seven years is quite a big gap, you know, when you're growing yeah, we were, up. So we were, what was that relationship we were good. like? I mean, we were good. I mean, we were good. You know, great relationship. You know, again, being younger was hard. You know, uh, playing, of course, football and him was hard. But, you know, we didn't have that comparison with each other, so it was great. I got a lot of knowledge from him about life, about football, about how to deal with women, how to be, you know, professional, you know, in the NFL, how to be professional, you know, in every aspect of life, on the field, off the field. So my brother relationship is our relationship is great. I mean, you know, being you know raised with you know, it's my brother, my father, and I, you know, that tight bond. It was always there for many, many years, and. It's something that I'm very proud of because, you know, it's the only two of us, and we both been to the NFL. My brother's had an amazing career. I was drafted, played, but, you know, I'll work after he does a lot of stuff with non-for-profits and things like that. So it's just nice that, you know, we're able to share some things together and keep our father's legacy alive. Yeah, I love the friendship and kinship, Marcus. That's um, that's really sweet. You know, I heard you say had to deal with women. Can you share a bit of the, sure. the big brother uh, insights he offered you? Yeah, he told me a lot about just respecting, like I already knew, but, you know, how to handle women that were going to be more aggressive, you know, coming after because you were an NFL athlete, like how to, you know, not get yourself in bad positions, how to just be very cognizant of, you know, making sure that you're very disrespectful, but at the same time, you don't get into situations with people with the wrong type of one, women that might just be after because you're making money, not because of who you are. So he really did, did a good job of telling me about that, things to look out for, how to build a relationship with somebody that's built off of trust and mutual respect, not just the physical attraction. 
And it's because of that, my wife and I, who's now been married, I'll be married uh, it'll be six years in, uh, in May, you know, my wife stuck beside me through my entire bankruptcy, everything that I went through, and without having that foundation for my brother, I would have probably picked the wrong person, and my life would be very different today, that's for sure. <laughs> Wow, that's crazy. Okay, before we get to the business career, for those of us who don't know, like always, I mean, I watch football, so I see it on TV. A little bit about the life of a professional uh, football player, you know, just to give us a little little sense of what it's like. Seems very glamorous. It seems very painful every time the guys fall on the ground. I mean, I literally think my arms would fly off my body if I fell (laughs) with that level of impact. So that's interesting. So the NFL was absolutely a phenomenal job, but that's what it is, a job. The training aspect and the lifting and the training camp and the body abuse. Like, people see what's on Sunday, but there's so much more than that. There's the reality of what you have to go through and what you have to endure. And those are the things that really and truly make you who you are, and that's what football is about. It's about the mental toughness that you have to endure as a result of this game and then learning how to treat it like a job and not like some type of, you know, famous, you know, person, all that, because if you treat it like that, Molly, you won't have a job for long. Yeah. You know, people for, for those of us who spent more time in more of an office workplace and you think about office politics and, you know, the favorites, is there a lot of that going on? Is it just like an office environment? How would you compare, you know, on the field versus in the office? Very, very similar. There are a lot of politics, a lot of favoritism. If you're a high draft pick, you get more choice than a low draft pick. If you have a lot, they have a lot of money tied up in you, they're going to give you a lot more chances because they've got so much invested in you. So, yes, it's very much political uh, like anything else in business. And because that's what football is. It's a bis- It's a glorified business with football pad and the helmet. That's what football is. <laughs> and what would you say uh, when you look back on um, those years was your, you know, what did you get the most out of it? You know, what was the, the best part of it for you? What I learned, what I learned most about football is that the culture of a winning team is the same in football as any other business. You have to have great foundation, you have to have great structure, you have to have great discipline. If you have those things in football, you're going to be great. If you have the things in business, you'll be great too. So for me, it was really awesome to be around so many great players and teams and cultures because I took that lesson and I grew a very successful business and what I've done with my career today as a speaker, as a coach, and as a consultant. That's great. We're going to get to that chapter in a, a moment. One question. If there were one thing that you would wish would change about the NFL, what, what might that be? I wish the NFL would do a better job of creating ways in which the fans and players could interact other than just training camp. Because I feel that that is what drives everything. Like if nobody's liking the game, which they're starting to have a little bit of trouble with that these days, because of all stuff happening with all the stuff like the kneeling and all that stuff, what happens is if your fan base is gone, your TV contracts are going to be less valuable, the merchandise goes down, your, your, your stadium things go down, your food goes down, all these things. So I, I, will, I hope as 
football continues to progress forward, they find ways for the fans and players to interact more often. This way, we can really keep a strong foundation of support, which will drive everything else to be successful, you know, for many, many years to come when it comes to the game. That's cool. That's cool. Okay, so now you're in this, you know, crazy elite, you know, world of the NFL. And talk to us about how you made the decision to become an entrepreneur. And then you had a lot of, you had ups and you had downs. <laughs> Big downs. So, I mean. I mean, really, I mean, I got into being an entrepreneur because I wanted to do something. I set my own schedule. I got into construction because I knew a little bit about it from some courses I took at USC. And I was like, this could be good. And I got into it and I had early success. And I tell my clients all the time, don't get mesmerized by early success. Because if you do, you can drop your guard, which can put you in a bad position. So I ended up getting into the construction business, had massive success in my first five years, became the largest African-American subcontractor in the city of Baltimore, state of Maryland. And then unfortunately, Molly, my ego got in the way. I was blinded by money and fame, and I call those the external motivating forces. And because of that, I ended up going bankrupt when one of my best employees tried to warn me about the company's condition, and I didn't listen. He left the company two weeks later, and like he predicted, Molly, six months to the day, I was, uh, I, I, the company went out of business. Wow. So when this employee came to you, what exactly did he or she say? And I'm, I wonder, I'd love to hear the conversation, and I imagine you kind of he, play it in your head over and over. <laughs> he said, Marcus, we're spending too much money on this job for the health laboratory. As a result, uh, and as a result of that, we've got an issue, which is that you and the company are not going to have enough capital to self-sustain the business. And if that happens, we're going to lose everything. And I told him, no, you're incorrect. We're good. Everything's fine. But no, he was 100% correct. We were over-leveraging our assets. And because of that, we ended up getting in over our heads, and that was the end of my story. And I went completely bankrupt. And how fast did that downfall happen? 90 days. And as it was going down, were you like, I see this, I see where we're going? Or were you thinking you were somehow going to magically make it I safe? Saw, I saw where we were going, but I thought we had a chance if the bank was going to extend our line of credit, which got denied. I thought we had a chance because we had two investors that were going to come together and buy out my partner. That didn't happen. And as soon as that didn't happen, I knew it was over. Okay. And then, so you're on your butt on the ground. What was that like? Uh, It was demoralizing. It was was humiliating. It was, it was absolutely just a feeling of despair and hopelessness. And I had lost all of my money, almost foreclosed on, both cars repossessed. I moved down here to Raleigh, and I had $400 to my name, Molly. That's it. And what, what, what was your family saying? How were they helping you through this? Well, my brother was there for support, moral support. My mother and I had, weren't speaking, and I remember working a job at Maryland, getting fired, and then getting fired from a construction company right after that. 
And as a result of that, I ended up saying, wow, I started feeling sorry for myself and I had to get my act together. And that's what happened. And I went and got a job as a custodian making eight twenty-five an hour. And as a result of that, it, I had my pivotal moment and I started to turn my life around. But really and truly, Molly, the only support I had at the time was my fiance, who's now my wife. And I had my mother, her family, and a few close friends, like two or three friends on my one hand I could think of. And that was it. And that was all I had. And it was a long, uphill, dark road battle. Depression, anxiety, stress, just a feeling of despair, you know, hopelessness is what I felt for a long time. Wow. Wow. So day to day, Marcus, how did you drag yourself up and, and keep going? Well, my wife was a great supporter and a good motivating, excuse me, a good inspirational factor to drive me every day. And when I started speaking in 2013, I got told no on every job I went after my for two and a half years straight. As a result of that, I just almost gave up many times, but I didn't. And when I got my first paid job and turned myself around, I was able to push forward. But in real terms, what happened was I just never gave up. I don't know if it was like just stupidity or hardheadedness or whatever the case may be, but it drove me every day to keep going, and that's what I did. Wow. How did the speaking thing happen? You said, I've got to tell my story. Someone said, you should go on speaking circuit. How did that happen? So I just I came home after my pivotal moment, and I wrote down three things I was good at, and I came up with I was good at communication, telling story, and wanting to help people. I said, I'm going to be a speaker, and I listened to like some Tony Robbins podcast and things like that, and I'm like, oh, I can do that. And I just, you know, and then the main thing why I started, Molly, was to help NFL athletes not make the same mistakes that I did. Then I found out that NFL athletes are just like anybody else. They make mistakes. They, I mean, I, mean, I found that regular people like NFL athletes make mistakes. They trust the wrong people. They need help. And that's when I was able to just, you know, blossom and get my career going uh, after learning that athletes and regular people have a lot of the same problems. That's so great. So two and a half years of people being like, no, thank you. No, thank you. No, thank you. Um, who was that first? Yes. My first yes for a paid job was Miller Mott college in Wilmington, North Carolina in April, 2016. And I had just published my first book, sleepless nights. They found me on a, uh, a website called speaker match and we connected, and they read my book, and we kind of had some discussions. And then after my second interview with the board director uh, and the alumni director, they made me the offer to speak for them at their 100th commencement graduation speech, which was uh, in Wilmington uh, at near the shore, which is a really, really nice place, by the way. And I did that, and they offered me $1,500 for a 20-minute talk, which was, I was like, wow, this is amazing. I mean, this is just blew me away. And that was my first paid speaking job that I had ever done for a client. And I'll never forget them. Uh, I love it. I love it. I love it. What did you do to celebrate? Uh, I came home and after I was able to get gas in the car, thank God. Uh, I came home and I told my wife, I said, well, yeah, I told my wife we were married for about a year. I said, okay, 
I can do this. Because I know I didn't do a great job, but the passion was there. I was excited about it, and I had to learn a lot of things. But at least I knew that the passion and the message was there to help people who were struggling because who couldn't help themselves. Did, do you feel like you had truly had periods of self-doubt or were you like, I know, I know I can do this. Oh, oh my God. No, I had self-doubt all the time. Like, what am I thinking? Why am I doing this? Speaker, really? Can I do this? Yeah, I mean, for two and a half years, you're told no every time. If you don't think you, if you don't have self-doubt, you're not honest about that, I'm going to call you someone who's not telling the truth. Because 30 months of being told no, that would demoralize anybody, even Arnold Schwarzenegger back in his Conan days. I don't care who you are. So I had a ton of self-doubt, you know, but I never allowed my self-doubt to turn and break my mindset. I took it all the time. You can have a bend, but don't break mindset. If you can do that, you're going to be fine. But that's where I was. I almost broke many times, Molly, but thank God I never did. That's so fabulous. Oh, my God. I, my smile is just is crazy. Um, Marcus, let's take a turn. Um, you know, we're thinking about all the uh, diversity and inclusion. And, you know, this, this whole Say It Skillfully show is about people being who they are, saying what needs to be said. Um, when you ran across people who were mean-spirited or, you know, were biased against you, how did you handle that through the course of your career? If that happened, you know, I'm just, just share with folks your experience um, and how, how you got through it. Oh, yeah. I mean, one of the biggest rejections of my life was a gentleman who worked for the NFL football team that was their director of player engagement, knew me and my family since I was 18, 17, 18, and I reached out to him about speaking to that NFL football team. And he said, okay, Marcus, we have a phone call got on the phone, started talking to him, and after about two minutes of me just kind of warming up to him and letting him tell me a little bit about what's going on, I was getting ready to tell my stuff, I remember him cutting me off and saying, Marcus, you know, I don't have a lot of time for this. I only took this phone call because you're J.O.'s, my brother Jonathan Osmond's younger brother. You're never going to speak for my, for my football team. You don't have what it takes. I don't want washed-up former players. I want former players that are stars or I want people who have their big names to come and speak for, to my team. If you have anything else to say, say it now. Otherwise, have a great day. Literally, that's what he told me. And I had known him for, at that time, it was probably about almost, about, it was about between 15 to 20 years I had known him. That was the most demoralizing, heartbreaking rejection I ever got. And I remember telling my wife, I said, wow, this is what he just told me. He said, Marcus, this is a lesson. People that you think love you and care about you just because you play football doesn't mean they're going to give you an opportunity. So you can either look at this as a learning lesson or you can complain about it. And when she said that, I turned it around, and then I ended up actually getting hired to an NFL team two years later. The Buffalo Bills brought me in to speak to their rookie class, and now I work for them. as a They're one of my clients. I talk to them, and they're doing phenomenal right now. They're second in the AFC. And I helped speak to some of their young superstars like Josh Allen, their quarterback, and oh, yeah. all these other great things. And again, I was rejected by a football team two years prior to that. Then two years later, my buddy, who's a great friend of mine, gave me an opportunity. A guy that I had only known for a year. I had only known Marlon Kerner, their director of play engagement, for a year. 
and he hired me to bring him to this job for him. I was the first speaker model he ever hired in his career in his new job as a play engagement director. The first one ever. First one he ever paid, hired, negotiated, all that. And I had only known him for one year. He's one of my best friends now. And a guy I knew for 17 years cut me off after 30 seconds to a minute, told me I would never work for them, work for them and shut me down within the first five minutes. It's just kind of hard to believe. So thank you for sharing mm-hmm. that. It, were these uh, black men, white men? I'm just yes. curious from a... Yes, uh, uh, the, both them were African-American. The gentleman worked for the one team was African-American and mom's African-American as well. Yes. Yeah. Wow. Did, did you see the race bias? Did you experience race bias in while you were working in, well, you know, NFL or actually in your real job, in your, in your, uh, of course. You know, oh, yes, work? absolutely. Yes, of course. Of course. So sh- just say, say a bit about that. Cause I, I think, you know, that's, I think it's just helpful to just talk about what it, happens and then how you've handled it. And I think that like, like all things, there are learning opportunities on both sides. So I, I appreciate right. and so it. What I found is that in anything you do, right, you have to give them a top quality product. And you're going to have places where sometimes they don't want me because I'm African-American or because of this or that. Absolutely. I've, been, I've, never, been, I've never been told that directly, but I'm smart enough to understand what that means. And because of that, what I focus on is just putting out a quality product better than anybody else. Black, white, Asian, Indian. I don't care what race you are, what color you are, what gender you are. That's why I work so hard. I love things like these type of interviews to get out and get the message out podcast, you know, doing things, posting on social media, I tagged you the day you made a comment about the job from Mutual of Omaha, our 18th Fortune 500 company in the last five years. All of these things are really important because I learned how to take rejection and use it to strengthen and build our resume so I get told no less than I get told yes. So I've learned how to use those things to help turn things around for a better uh, uh, outcome. I don't mm-hmm. get mad or I don't dwell on what I can't change. I just realize what it is. So okay, that company has a, another reason, whatever that reason is, that's their decision. And I just keep moving forward and I just keep marketing myself to work for companies that are the right fit for me and our brand. Yeah, I love I love people staying true to their true north. Everyone listen to that, that's fabulous. Uh, when you made the career transition, you know, I, I know it's kind of more dramatic than folks maybe working in office jobs, but what did, uh, what didn't translate from the pro athlete world into business, if anything? Uh, what didn't translate was the barbaric, uh, the barbaric style. Like, you know, in football, the harder you play, the harder you do it's the better you do. And in the business world, you can't do that. And I think that's sometimes where players struggle is the mental, aspect, the mental aspect of turning off that barbaric warrior mentality because that's what we've been doing our whole lives. And in the business world, it's more being just, uh, you know, being very cognitive, talking things through, having conversation and dialogue. You can't get people to change their mind by going out there, hitting them and tackling them like you can in football. And you have to develop the mindset that your mental capacity is going to be your big weapon versus your physical stature and strength. And once I learned that in my speaking business, it really helped to play a major part in us becoming more successful to really, really phenomenal clients. 
Yeah. I appreciate how you're sharing all these learnings, Marcus, because I think, you know, we're making mistakes. The whole point is make new mistakes, keep growing, keep learning. Uh, that's phenomenal. When you look back, and I know you've got a long runway to go, any particular regrets or do-overs you'd like to share with listeners? Yeah, absolutely. I wish when I was 23 with the Jaguars, I would have asked to not be traded to the Ravens. I wish I would have learned how to have better communication and open dialogue with my coach, my offensive line coach, to figure out what I could have done better to stay in his good graces, to be the player he wanted me to be, to reach a high level of success. Now, I had a great career after that, so I'm not complaining, but I wish I would have done a better job of learning how to communicate my feelings and having, you know, talking and, you know, and making that, that type of interaction with him where I could be seen by him as a player that is very athletic and very gifted, also a player that can communicate and can express his words and his thought process to hopefully come out with an outcome that works for both sides. So I wish I could take that back, learning how to communicate better with my old offensive line coach in the Jaguar instead of asking to trade it and taking the easy way out. This is so great to bring this up. Obviously, this is the spirit of the Say It Skillfully show. Let's role play this and let's take the wisdom you have now and you're back then, you're 23 with this coach. You know, how might you go in and handle it, knowing what you know now, how much you go in and actually have this conversation. Let's role play a lot. So I would say, I would say, coach, you know, for some reason, we're not seeing eye to eye on how I'm playing the game right now. What could I do better to get into a better position where you can see and I can see I'm developing to the point in which you feel and I uh, and I feel that we can get things done and. Let's, let's discuss it and let's dialogue about it. And then once he would give me the suggestion, I would say, coach, well, I'm trying this. How about I do this? While I'm doing that, how about I start doing this? And taking his suggestions, Molly, and not getting very upset or getting very defensive with good critique. That was my weak point in my youth. I didn't take critique very well because uh, I had never been really critiqued in high school and in college. I was not critiqued very often. In the NFL, I got critiqued a lot because it was a big level of a difference of a game. So I believe going in there and asking him those questions, how to have that dialogue, how to do those things, would have made a much better outcome where I would have stayed with the Jaguars and had a longer career with them because he drafted me, he saw something in me, but because I didn't learn how to communicate with him because, again, I was struggling with some things, and I just said, what happens to all football players when you go to another level, right? I should have been man enough to say, hey, coach, I'm struggling here. How can we fix this? What are you seeing that I can work on and improve? And then have an open dialogue, and then he gave me some, the uh, constructive feedback. Take the feedback, Molly, and not get defensive or upset. Yeah, it's huge learning, folks. It's awesome. And I'll just add on to, to that, uh, Marcus, for folks just to give them example. When you walk in office and this positive energy and this your coach, you know, I'm getting a sense. I'm getting a sense that we're not exactly on the same page and is now a good time to talk about it. Right. So it's just a- asking for permission that back and forth right out of the gate helps people mm-hmm. kind of it builds confidence and positivity. And then, you know, my sense is we're not on the same page. Here's why. So you're kind of getting a sense. Yep, I'm with you. Okay. And then you look at I own it. I'm realizing mm-hmm. that 
X, what do you think, right? And you did that. And then when someone says something, and, and folks have heard this before, someone offers something, it's very, the, the, whether it's defensiveness or just wanting to respond or the number one thing is, gosh, thank you. Thank you. That's it, right? That's just because it's honoring no, the person no, that cares enough, right? That's 100% correct. And that was my biggest problem, and I wish I could take it back. If I just didn't know how to handle critique and constructive criticism very well because I had never really dealt with it a lot in my earlier career. Yeah, and, it, and it is, I really, it, it's hard. It's hard when you're you're young and you haven't been through that type of pressure, that type of situation. You're not prepared for it, and that's my fault. And I can go back and I can own it. And that's like today with my business yesterday about diversity and inclusion. Well, again, if I have racial bias, people can be biased. That's fine. That's what the, that's their right. Is it right? No, but that's their right to do so. I mean, it's a good thing to do, but people can do what they want to do. So all I can do, Molly, is work hard on what I can control, my client base, great videos, great website, great message, great, true honesty. Like you told me today with my post, like I didn't just post, oh, it's our 18th Fortune 500 company and we're great. Well, no, no, this is our 18th Fortune 500 company, but for two and a half years, I was told no on every job. No one cared about us or anything we had to say and they for darn sure weren't going to pay us anything. So all I've learned to do today is work on what I can control because that's all I can do. If someone doesn't like me or my message, I can't change that. I'm not going to try to be forceful or do something about it. I'm just going to continue to do what I can do best and be somebody that's positive and just work hard and leave a positive legacy no matter what people think about me, good, bad, or indifferent. I love it. I love it. I want to call out for listeners doing this and – what Marcus is, is showing is there's no ill will uh, about the, the party that has a different point of view. It's just very neutral. And I think that let's not make people wrong or bad. Let's honor that we have some differences. They, they don't want to use you. That's great. But there's no, well, they don't know what they're talking about. Or they, sh- they you know, it's their loss. There's, it's the ability to let that go is not easy. You know, so I really want to call that out for you, Marcus, and, um, and encourage folks to, to try that in real life. And it's not easy. Um, let me shift gears here. When you hear the word privilege, what comes up for you? Huh. Privilege is somebody that is given things that doesn't have to work for them, or someone has worked hard to give them things that they didn't have to work for. And is it a word that comes up for you? Um, do you see it often? How do you respond to it when you see it? Oh, yeah. I mean, I was very privileged growing up for the first eight years of my life. I mean, my father made $150,000 a year back in the late 80s. So absolutely, I grew up with privilege. But what happened is when my parents divorced and my father got sick with kidney failure, well, let me go back. My parents divorced. My father lost his job with the Federal Home, with the federal home Loans Bank of New York. Then my brother was at a very expensive high school, $22,000 a year back in the late 80s, early 90s. My dad had $90,000 of savings. He burnt through his savings, paying for my brother's education because my mom refused to pay anything. So by the time it got to me, right around uh, my high school, like around my freshman year, we were broke. Like, we had nothing. My father had no money. He was trying to get, he, he, was, he had a job here and there, and I loved him to death, but he had kidney failure. And so, because he was, it was obese in his youth and in a lot of part of his life, 
And that's what it was. And from the age of like 13 to 18, whew, it was, or 17, I went to college, well, almost, eight, almost 18. That was rough. I mean, like, no heat in the house some days, uh, no, you know, electric bills were barely getting paid. I remember having, like, bugs and everything in our cereal. I would open the refrigerator door. Cheese was molded. Uh, yogurt was gone spoiled. I mean, I remember, remember those days. Thank God for my grandparents because I spent so much time with them that I was able to eat a lot with them. And I just remember getting in trouble as a kid while I was probably 15 or 16. I used to lie to people about eating. So I would go to someone like my godmother's house that I tell you about earlier. I would eat at my godparents' house. I would go to one of my best friends' house and say, well, Marcus, are you, uh, are you hungry? I'm like, yeah. Did you, did you already eat? I'm like, no. I would eat again. And then they found out about it. And they, then they got mad at me and said, well, Marcus, why are you lying about food? Because I didn't want to tell anybody that I, there was pretty much no food at our house. I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to throw my father under the bus. So I would overeat places on purpose, knowing that at home there was not going to be a lot of times. You know, or it could be, you know, the cereal might go bad or we might have no cheese. Or, you know, I mean, I remember looking at our refrigerators and just being bare or being where the, the cabinets were filled with, like, you know, cobwebs and ants and flies and stuff. And the stuff we had in there was gone bad. I, mean, I remember those days. So, you know, it's interesting to say privilege. Was I privileged growing up? Sure. I don't really remember the whole lot. But I was, from what I was told. But when I got to high school, oh, no, it was literally, and I went to a, a private high school that my grandmother and my great aunt came together and paid for because my dad had no money. Wow. Wow. Marcus, talk about, you know, the, in the world today, right? And there are folks who have situations, there's food insecurity, they don't have places to live. Um, what can we, what can people be doing to help? to help each other. What are, what are some of your thoughts on, you know, and I'm not saying one person saves the world, but what can each of us, no, you know, empower ourselves do. to do? If people can just take a moment to ask other people, how are they doing? How are they feeling? And what do they need within reason? Of course, that will change the world. It doesn't take you asking, you know, to do this for them or build them a mountain or build them a podcast. Like, you know, how are you today? How is your mental state? How are you handling things? It's the little things. Those go a long way. So really and truly, Molly, I feel people just need to just take a little bit of time and just be vested and ask people questions about how they're doing, how are things going, and can I help you with anything within reason. Doing those little things like that can go a really long way. I love it. I love it. I love it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for that. Um, we wind it down a little. Couple questions. Biggest compliment someone's given you? <laughs> um, Marcus, it's absolutely amazing that you have worked for 18 Fortune 500 companies in the last five years. That, I, I was, it was, someone said to me, I was like, wow. I just kind of stopped and thought, like, that's pretty insane since five years ago, I hadn't had a paid job. <laughs> Spectacular, my friend. Um, and I know you're always about growing. So just share with our listeners an area of growth for you. Learning how to take advice and inclusion from my team 
and allowing them to do their job because they are the experts. And when I pay people money for something, that gives them every right to say what they want to say because they have earned my dollars, which means they should earn my respect. I love it. And as you're have listening to yourself, and you've shared a lot, and I'm just grateful for how generously you've shared, Marcus, so thank you. Um, what's a top takeaway that you have from just kind of hearing yourself? The top takeaway is learn how to have communication with people and have dialogue, like I should have done with my coach as a rookie. That is probably the one that stands out the most because I could have controlled that situation better if I just would have took time to speak to him and have a open dialogue on an even keel form. He was my boss, but learn and let him know I was interested in how to get better from his perspective. That could have gone a long way for me in my career. That's awesome. And, you know, I know you talk a lot, but uh, this is a, maybe a little bit different of a forum. So what was sharing your story like for you? It was good. I have never shared the story about my mother uh, on platform before. Um, but it's real. Everything has happened. It's happened. And, you know, I try to sometimes, you know, keep that quiet. But I think this show and what you're about and what you're talking in the audience, it relates well. So I didn't mind talking about it. But it's something I have never done before. And it's very difficult, uh, to be honest. But, you know, it, it is what it is. And it's reality. And I lived it. And my mom is 71 years old right now. And I'm 40. And, you know, she'll be 72 in April. And, uh, you know, I hope she'll change. I would love to see that happen, but if she doesn't, I can only just, when I meet my maker, say I, I try to be the best son I could, and I can only meet someone halfway. I can't make her be something she doesn't want to be. So I, once I learned that, Molly, things for me got better. It's wonderful. Marcus, I appreciate you. I appreciate all you shared. Uh, if I can be helpful at all, you know how to reach me. Um, we love what you're putting out in the universe and for all the other X hundred uh, kinds of companies. I hope many, many hire you. I thank you for being part of the solution. And here's to a spectacular new year for you and your family. All right, thanks for having me on. Have a great day. You too. Take care. Uh, my thought for the week is in honor of listening to the heart. It's from an unknown author and words I've used to wind down a yoga practice. It's impossible, said pride. It's risky, said experience. It's pointless, said reason. Give it a try, whispered the heart. A reminder, there's more help for you at sayitskillfully.com, my website. And my passion project over these past two years has taken flight with my TEDx talk. So I invite you to go to ted.com, type in my name, and uh, would love your thoughts. And I wish you a beautiful 2021. May hope and optimism abound for you and all those around you. And that's a wrap. Thanks for tuning in. Please be part of the solution and kindly share this show and amplify Marcus's voice. Reflect on your top takeaways. And know I'm cheering for you to be who you are and say what needs to be said so that you and those around you have a shared reality, essential to make the best decisions, execute with speed, and achieve outstanding outcomes at work and in life. Thanks for listening to Say It Skillfully with host Molly Chang. Join us again for more ways to say it skillfully next Tuesday, 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. Follow Molly on LinkedIn and Twitter 
Check out SayItSkillfully.com and sign up so you don't miss her latest 90-second video. And please, be part of the solution. Kindly tell others about this program so they say it skillfully too.